Let us begin with a few words about our sponsor. This episode is dedicated to Dante G for making a donation to the podcast. If you have heard Dante's name before, it is because he has made two other donations since this year began. Now that he has done it again, three episodes in a row have been dedicated to him. Dante, may you be in the best possible health for all of this year. For if you have your health, other forms of success are possible. And now I will return you to your regularly scheduled podcast. Hello. You have found the History of Southeast Asia podcast. I am your host, Charles Kimball. Episode 127, Sumbawa, or I Don't Know Where I'm Gonna Go When the Volcano Blows. Greetings, dear listeners, for the 127th time from the hills of bluegrass country in Kentucky. If you listen to the episodes as soon as they come out, you know that lately it has taken me more than a month to produce one. The main reason is the research each one requires. Not only do I have less time each day for the research, but when you're looking for obscure information, the process naturally takes longer. Of course, Back before the internet became available to ordinary folks like me, the research would have required more than one trip to libraries. And then, since podcasts did not exist in those days, whatever I produced would have taken another form, like a book or an article in a journal. Anyway, this time it helped that I did the research for both the previous episode and the current episode together, when I thought the material for both was going into episode 126. Then I decided such an episode would be too long, and for 126, I just used the material for Lombok. This meant I began working on this episode with most of the research already finished. The delays came after the research. I was sick with a nasty cold for two and a half weeks. And then it was time to do what every American is expected to do at this time of the year. Complete the paperwork on my taxes. For those listening to this podcast for the first time, and for those who listened to the past few episodes but forgot what was covered, This is the fourth episode in a mini-series about the islands of eastern Indonesia. I am doing this because the main narrative I had running about Southeast Asian history is finished, at least as far as the year 2021, and the most recent episodes have gone back to topics that deserved more attention, like when I devoted an episode to the Vietnamese refugees 
who fled abroad in the late 20th century. One of my listeners wanted to hear more about eastern Indonesia, because when I talked about the whole country, we mainly looked at events on the three big islands in the west, Borneo, Sumatra, and Java. Therefore, we are now giving equal time to the east. Episode 124 was about Bali. Episode 125 was about Sulawesi. And episode 126 was about Lombok. When I worked on Lombok, I didn't expect to say much about it, because it is not as well known to outsiders as Bali and Sulawesi. Indeed, I remember when the only thing I knew about Lombok was that it was located next to Bali. Nevertheless, I found enough information about Lombok to justify giving it a whole episode. Now today's episode is about the next island to the east of Lombok, Sumbawa. How far will we get here? Like Lombok, Sumbawa is another large island in the Lesser Sunda chain. At 15,448 square kilometers, or 5,965 square miles, it is larger than Lombok and the ninth largest island in all of Indonesia. It is known for sapinwood, a tree that is a valuable source of red dye. Other valuable resources from Sumbawa include honey, pearls, sandalwood, rice, and most of all, horses. In the 18th century, the Dutch introduced coffee plantations on the slopes of Mount Tambora, a volcano on the north side of Sumbawa, thus creating the Tambora coffee variant. The island's extensive grasslands make it a good place for breeding horses and cattle. Just over one and a half million people live here, but I wouldn't call them an indigenous population because most of their ancestors arrived during the past 200 years. Those on the west side of the island are the descendants of immigrants from Lombok, and their main city is Sumbawa Besar, while the bulk of those living on the east side have ancestors from Sulawesi, and their main city is Bima. The island's previous population was not of Malay ancestry, like most Indonesians, but a Melanesian tribe. The Melanesians mainly live in the southwest Pacific. I described them in episode 102. In fact, the westernmost Melanesian community was on Sumbawa, and they spoke a language called Tambora. We will see what happened to them shortly. 
Sumbawa is at the eastern limit for the part of Indonesia that is strongly influenced by the western islands. During the past 2,000 years, missionaries from the western islands brought first Hinduism and then Islam to Sumbawa. But there was not much of an effort to introduce those religions to the islands farther east than that. As we continue to the easternmost islands, you will see the local culture become less Southeast Asian and more like the cultures of the Pacific. Today, Sumbawa's inhabitants follow Islam, but in remote areas, traditional law, traditional healing techniques, and various legends, together called Adat, have survived. Overall, the population of Sumbawa is more conservative than that of the other islands we have visited. Horse-drawn carriages are a common sight. They are known as Ben-Hurs, from the chariots in the 1959 movie. Tourism is not as well developed as on Bali and Lombok. The two main sources of income are agriculture and a large gold and copper mine that opened here in 2000. Both of the island's main cities have airports, with regular commercial flights from Bali and Sulawesi. But many tourists will take a ferry boat from Lombok, travel across Sumbawa on the island's one good highway, and then take another ferry to Komodo or Flores. They don't even have to leave their bus if they don't want to. The tourists who venture away from the highway are mainly surfers, because like Lombok, Sumbawa has some great surfing spots. One of my sources, the Lonely Planet website, declared that most of Sumbawa is the domain of surfers, miners, and mullahs, or Islamic clergymen. We don't have much information about what was happening on Sumbawa before the 14th century. The oldest known state was Bima, on the east side of the island. Originally, it was a Hindu-Buddhist kingdom, like other Indonesian states in the Middle Ages, and it was probably founded in the 11th century. Its name comes from Bhima, a mythical hero from the Hindu epic, the Mahabharata. A local legend asserts the founders of the kingdom were two brothers, Indera Jambrut and Indera Kamala, who claimed descent from Bhima and a golden dragon woman, and this gave them supernatural powers. There was an invasion from Java in 1357, and because of it, Sumbawa came under the control of the short-lived but mighty Majapahit Empire. Majapahit's epic poem, the Nagara Kirtagama, mentions four principalities in the area that were dependencies of the empire, Dompu, Bima, and Sapi on Sumbawa, and one on Sanghyang Api Island, just off the coast of northeast Sumbawa. We believe the Javanese introduced horses and wet rice cultivation 
during this time. For a short period of time, around 1550, the Balinese kingdom of Gelgel ruled western Sumbawa and temporarily prevented the spread of Islam here. In 1676, the Balinese returned to Lombok and they tried to reconquer western Sumbawa as well, leading to an on and off conflict between Bali and western Sumbawa that lasted until 1789. Meanwhile, the eastern part of Sumbawa converted to Islam wholeheartedly. There may have been Muslims here as early as 1440, but the official conversion date is 1621, when a ruler who embraced Islam, Abdul Qair I, came to the throne in Bima. Henceforth, the kingdom of Bima will be known as the Sultanate of Bima. In both conversion and in conflicts with its neighbors, Bima was supported by the Bugis and Makassar peoples of Sulawesi and also conducted extensive trade with them. Unfortunately, because of the slave markets that I mentioned on Sulawesi, in episode 125, this meant that many people on Sumbawa were captured and sold as slaves on Sulawesi. The Sultanate of Bima, in turn, claimed authority over two places farther east, Sumba and the eastern tip of Flores, but was unable to enforce its authority there. The Dutch first arrived on Sumbawa in 1605, but for a while afterwards, they were not very active here. Other Indonesian islands, especially Java and the Moluccas, kept them busy. Their main activity in the Lesser Sundas was to limit Portuguese trade and missionary activity to the island of Timor. We will talk more about that another time. And the wars between the Dutch and Makassar, which we covered in episode 125, were another distraction. Then in 1674, the nobility in six Sumbawanese states signed agreements with the Dutch that gave the Dutch East India Company some power over the island like a monopoly over the sappenwood trade. In effect, the Dutch became a foreign prince that oversaw and helped to resolve differences between the native states, while limiting their presence in the area to their fortress at Makassar on Sulawesi and a small outpost at Bima. The main opposition to the Dutch at this point came from the Tambora Kingdom, which waged a violent anti-Dutch struggle from 1695 to 1697. This conflict ended when the resources of that small kingdom were exhausted. Now 
Sumbawa, like Lombok, has a major volcano that erupted within historical memory. This volcano, Mount Tambora, blew its top on April 10, 1815. And because that is more recent than the eruption on Lombok, this eruption is better recorded. Tambora's eruption was the largest in modern history releasing anywhere from 38 to 51 cubic miles of gases, dust, and ash into the atmosphere. To give you an idea of how big the eruption was, Mount Tambora stood 14,100 feet high before the eruption, but today it is 9,400 feet high. The top third of the mountain was destroyed in the blast and the caldera on top of the mountain, also created by the eruption, is three miles wide. Around 10,000 people were killed directly by poisonous gases and lava flows. 49,000 to 90,000 died soon afterwards from famine or disease epidemics caused by the eruption, and 35,000 survivors fled the island. All vegetation on Sumbawa was destroyed, hence the famine. Tsunamis were reported striking the neighboring islands, and for a few months afterwards, islands of pumice and vegetation, as much as three miles across, floated in the Indian Ocean. One was reported in the neighborhood of Calcutta, in India. For the whole world, weather was colder than normal for the following year, thanks to the dirty atmosphere blocking much of the sun's light. And 1816 came to be known as the year without a summer. We have reports of famine and epidemics in North America and Europe. In Europe, the weather following the eruption was a factor at the Battle of Waterloo which took place two months later. For America, 1815 and 1816 were listed as the coldest years in recorded history. Some Americans dubbed 1816 as, quote, 1800 and froze to death, unquote. In the state of Vermont, there was frost in every month of 1816 and summertime freezes were reported as far south as Virginia. Thomas Jefferson, the retired former president, had such a poor corn crop in 1816 that he applied for a $1,000 loan. Thousands of New England residents moved west, looking for a warmer climate on the other side of the Ohio River. So many took part in this migration that Indiana became a new state in 1816 and Illinois became a state in 1818. The gloomy weather of 1816 may have even inspired Mary Shelley, the wife of the famous poet Percy Shelley, to write her classic horror story, Frankenstein. However, 
The ash falling on the earth also made the soil more fertile. So there were bountiful harvests after the weather warmed up again. Thomas Stamford Raffles, the future founder of Singapore, was the acting governor of Java at this time. And here is what he wrote in his memoir about the eruption. Quote, the first explosions were heard on this island in the evening of 5 April. They were noticed in every quarter and continued at intervals until the following day. The noise was, in the first instance, almost universally attributed to distant cannon, so much so that a detachment of troops was marched from Yogyakarta in the belief that a neighboring post was being attacked. And along with the coast, boats were in two instances dispatched in quest of a supposed ship in distress. End quote. When Raffles found out that the explosions were not from cannon fire, but from the volcano on Sumbawa, he sent a British officer Lieutenant Owen Phillips, to go see the devastation up close. Here is what this chap saw. Quote, On my trip towards the western part of the island, I passed through nearly the whole of Dompo and a considerable part of Bima. The extreme misery to which the inhabitants have been reduced is shocking to behold. There were still on the roadside the remains of several corpses and the marks of where many others had been interred. The villages almost entirely deserted and the houses fallen down, the surviving inhabitants having dispersed in search of food. Since the eruption, a violent diarrhea has prevailed in Bima, Dompo, and Sangir which has carried off a great number of people. It is supposed by the natives to have been caused by drinking water, which has been impregnated with ashes. And horses have also died, in great numbers, from a similar complaint. End quote. Of the three kingdoms nearest the volcano, Pepecot and Tambora were completely wiped out, while the third, Sangar, lost more than half its population to the eruption or the hardships that followed. One of the survivors, the Raja of Sangar himself, gave a unique eyewitness account of the devastating event to Lieutenant Phillips. Quote, about 7 p.m. on the 10th of April, three distinct columns of flame burst forth near the top of Tambora Mountain, all of them apparently within the verge of the crater. And after ascending separately to a very great height, their tops united in the air in a troubled, confused manner. In a short time, the whole mountain next Sangar appeared like a body of liquid fire extending itself in every direction. 
the fire and columns of flame continued to rage with unabated fury until the darkness, caused by the quantity of falling matter, obscured it at about 8 p.m. Stones at this time fell very thick at Sangar, some of them as large as two fists, but generally not larger than walnuts. Between 9 and 10 p.m., ashes began to fall, and soon after a violent whirlwind ensued, which blew down nearly every house in the village of Sangar, carrying the tops and light parts away with it. In the part of Sangar adjoining Tambora, its effects were much more violent, tearing up by the roots the largest trees and carrying them into the air together with men, houses, cattle, and whatever else came within its influence. The sea rose nearly 12 feet higher than it ever had been known to be before, and completely spoiled the only small spots of rice lands in Sangar, sweeping away houses and everything within its reach. End quote. The British ruled Java from 1811 to 1816, because in Europe the Dutch homeland had been conquered by the French, and during the Napoleonic Wars, any territory claimed by the French, no matter where it was in the world, was fair game for the British to take. But after the wars ended, Britain returned control of Java to the Dutch. Thus. Raffles and Phillips did not get to do much to help the victims of the eruption. They didn't have time before they had to leave. Go to episodes 22 and 23 to see what else I said about the career of Raffles. The Tambora culture was destroyed by the eruption. A few years later, Tambora became a dead language. As the survivors learned the languages, used on neighboring islands. Because of them, many of today's residents on Sumbawa look like Melanesians. The people who moved to Sumbawa after the eruption mostly spoke two Indonesian languages, either Sumbawanese if they came from Lombok or Bimanese if they came from Sulawesi. Even now, because of the different languages, the population of Sumbawa is divided into two basic groups. The Dutch East India Company went out of business just before 1800. So when the Dutch returned to Indonesia, their government was in charge, rather than a corporation. Still, I don't have much to say about the period of Dutch rule on Sumbawa. The local states and princes, those that survived the Mount Tambora eruption, were allowed to act normally for the rest of the 19th century. So much so that before 1900, an ordinary person on Sumbawa could go through his whole life without ever seeing a European. I mentioned earlier that Dutch priorities were in other parts of Indonesia, not Sumbawa, and the Netherlands was a small country, more than 7,000 miles away. 
so their manpower in this part of the world was limited. Nevertheless, over time the Dutch managed to transform their role from an allied superior to a sovereign power. The Dutch takeover came in 1905 with the declaration that the Sumbawan princedoms were now part of the Dutch colonial empire. We saw in episode 125 how this was usually done. The Dutch authorities sent an agent to a local prince with a paper that declared this prince had surrendered his powers to the Netherlands government. If the prince signed the paper, that was that. If he didn't, a war of conquest followed. In this case, my research turned up no report of fighting on Sumbawa, so I am assuming this was a peaceful annexation. And afterwards, the Dutch directly handled taxation, public works, the legal system, and so on. The period of direct Dutch rule over Sumbawa was relatively brief, only lasting 37 years, from the annexation until World War II. Thus, the Dutch did not have time to do much on Sumbawa. Then in early 1942, the Japanese arrived, and they occupied the island for the next three and a half years. I mentioned in other episodes that when the Japanese invaded Indonesia, the Dutch were unable to resist, because their homeland in Europe had been overrun by the Germans in 1940. On Sumbawa, the natives made sure the Dutch would not resist, by showing how little respect they had for the Dutch authority. A mutiny among native soldiers and policemen made it easy for the Japanese, and Sumbawa's two remaining sultans formally invited in the invaders. In Bima, cheering crowds shouted, Hidup Nippon, meaning, Long live Japan! And they set up a gate of honor, bearing the words, 2602 Ano Jimu Tenno, a phrase which counted the years from the traditional date of the first Japanese emperor. Soon afterwards, however, as with all of Southeast Asia, the Japanese brought hardship to the locals. Men were put to work on labor projects, and women were ordered to serve in military brothels as comfort women. Still, this wasn't enough to make Indonesians wish for the Dutch to come back. Where the Japanese made improvements was in education. The Dutch had cared so little for this part of everyday life that Sumbawa's population was 99% illiterate at the beginning of the war. Within a year after the war ended, the Dutch managed to regain control, and overall Sumbawa stayed quiet during the Indonesian National Revolution. The sultans tried to establish a place for themselves in Sukarno's republic, but because they had cooperated with the colonial authorities before 1949, 
the people no longer had much respect for them. And as we saw in other episodes, time had run out for the traditional monarchs. Thus, the sultans were pensioned off in the 1950s. Muhammad Salahuddin, the Sultan of Bima when independence came, died in Jakarta in 1951. His son Abdul Qahir was declared the head of a self-ruling territory, but then in 1958, the Sumbawan principalities were abolished by the Jakarta government and replaced by today's bureaucracy. He died in 2001. On the other side of the island, the Sultan of Sumbawa Besar, Muhammad Kaharuddin III, played an active role after World War II. In previous episodes, we saw that the Dutch tried to set up a state that was friendly to them in the eastern islands, which they called Negara Indonesia Timor or the state of eastern Indonesia. While that state existed, Sultan Kaharuddin served as the speaker of its parliament. He briefly served in the Senate during the eight-month period when Indonesia was a confederation of states, called the United States of Indonesia, then acted as regent of the Sultanate until his abdication in 1960. He died in 1975 at the age of 73. His family still claims the Sultanate's throne, but no one was called Sultan until 2011, and the current occupant does not have any governing authority. The former Sultan's home contains several artifacts from the time of the Sultanate and has become a tourist destination. Incidentally, the two airports on Sumbawa are named after the last official sultans from each royal family. Sultan Muhammad Kaharuddin III Airport and Sultan Muhammad Salahuddin Airport, respectively. takes care of Sumbawa. Now it's time to get on the figurative ferry boat again and continue to the next major island on our eastward journey, Flores, with a stop on the small island of Komodo. Join me again next time as we visit the islands that gave us real-life dragons and hobbits. You'll have to go all the way back to episode one to find out what I meant by that. Do you like listening to podcasts without ads? If you do, and can afford to financially support the show, I will greatly appreciate it. This podcast is free to listen to, 
but not free for me to make. Because of this, only a few listeners are motivated to make a donation. If you are one of them, that means you are a special person. One-time donations are made through PayPal, or you can sign up to make a small monthly donation through Patreon. I have included links to both on the Blueberry.com page that hosts this episode. And even if you cannot make a financial contribution at this time, you could still help by telling others about the show. So spread the word to anyone who might be interested. Like always, thank you for listening, and come back when the monsoon winds are blowing right.